the goal is to avoid exit scams and to avoid major flaws that would make all the users of a, of a certain wallet vulnerable to some backdoors that get injected by the provider or by somebody who has a means to add attack through maybe some libraries that are used in that wallet, etc. Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Hello, my dear listeners. I'm glad that you're here again. Our topic today is all about Bitcoin wallets and their security. I'm talking with Leo Wandersleep, a German developer living in Chile, who is the founder of a project called Wallet Scrutiny. If you have any question about the podcast or Bitcoin, feel free to visit the episode page at bitcoinandco.com forward slash en, where you will find an audio recorder to record your question. For German speakers, I relaunched the German version of the podcast and teamed up with Daniela Schlicht to dive into Bitcoin and its implications and developments bi-weekly. You can find it on bitcoinandco.com.de. If you're interested in more Bitcoin-related podcasts, you should check out the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find my podcast and other Bitcoin-related shows too. And now, a short message from my sponsors. Not your keys, not your coins, is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet, which is what most professional crypto experts use for those who have problems or difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets for long-term safe storage, there is the card wallet. The card wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed, it's 100% offline and it leaves no traces on the blockchain. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker founded in 2014. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. If you're interested in more Bitcoin-related podcasts, then check out the Let's Talk Bitcoin network at letstalkbitcoin.com, where you can find a number of other highly relevant Bitcoin podcasts today. Hello, Leo. Thanks for your time to do this interview. Hi, Anita. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I founded Wallet Scrutiny all on my own. I had little help by others later on, but it's basically my project at this point. That's great. We'll talk about that and also about your interest in Bitcoin in general. I found your project uh, because I'm not only a podcaster, but also a Bitcoin educator. I wrote a guide for Bitcoin newbies. And as such, I'm always interested in the advancements and security of wallets, of course, and also as a user. I always want to recommend the best state-of-the-art wallets to my readers. That's the reason why I wanted to talk to you. But before we start, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What ha have you been doing before? And how did you get into Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm a German citizen uh, living in Chile since nine years now. 
And I studied mathematics in Munich. And after that, I started as a software developer, first uh, database admin and stuff, then game developer. Later, I came to Chile for a startup, which was also a Facebook game. And there I was already a bit into Bitcoin. So I was looking at opportunities to get into Bitcoin full-time as I was very much fascinated of how Bitcoin works and what can be done with it. And four years ago, or more than four years ago, I got in touch with Mycelium and they hired me. And a year later or so, I became the release manager of Mycelium. At Mycelium, I am full-time in charge of making the wallet secure. So I'm reviewing everything that goes into the wallet. But I see that this is not possible as a single person on such a project. And I am very sure that other projects have the same issue. So I was exploring how to improve the situation on, in general for all the Bitcoin wallets. And that's where I founded Wallet Scrutiny last year in November. That's a great idea. Is living in Chile also a reason for you to be interested in Bitcoin? What's the situation in Chile? Is it in a way comparable, uh, like from the standpoint of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, for instance, like in Venezuela or Argentina? Can you tell us a little bit about that? In South America, the Chilean currency is probably the most stable. So, and also the banks work quite great here. So, Here in Chile, when you do a bank transfer, it's always instant. So it's not like you would see it the next day, like in Germany, or at least that's how it was when I left Germany, or some days later, like it is in the United States. Now in Chile, when I do a wire transfer, the other person knows about it before my page reloads on the internet banking. It's really instant. And always instant. So from that point, inflation, nah, not so much. So yeah, uh, the volatility of Bitcoin is probably scaring more people than the volatility of their national currency. Not like in Argentina, where they have a reset of their banking system every eight years or so. And not like in Venezuela, where they devalue their, their currency at a mind-boggling pace. But yeah, there is some interest. So if the financial system in Chile is uh, quite stable compared to other South American countries, what are the sides of Bitcoin that interest you the most? It's a system that is not controlled by a handful of people that uh, do some backroom deals and surprise the general public with whatever interest decisions like interest rate change and so you have the high-frequency trading bots that analyze the latest changes in femtoseconds to do trades of billions of dollars. That's crazy. So I prefer something that is just out of the control of everybody and that makes it a much more honest money and that doesn't give the power to some central banks that can... I mean, what does increase balance sheet mean? It means that the central bank currently is buying up the real assets. It's buying up the not only the government bonds, okay, those are worthless, 
pieces of paper anyway. But now they are also buying up companies and uh, doing all kind of market trades, which skew the market. So if a company should fail, then the central bank comes along and saves it just because it employs people doing shit nobody needs. That's something that should not happen. And with Bitcoin, we can fix this. Are you also interested in other uh, cryptocurrencies and other blockchain projects or only in Bitcoin, BTC? I'm slightly interested in Grincoin, but other than that, I am only interested in Bitcoin. I do some Ethereum transactions for my job at Mycelium because my boss decided to integrate Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens. But other than that, I did not touch, well, I did sell the fork coins like the Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV to get more Bitcoins. But other than that, I did not touch any other crypto coins. Why do you think that other crypto coins are not so interesting? DC is currently just the most solid, the, the biggest development team. And the network effect is super important for this, this to work. Bitcoin can be considered as a balance sheet or, or a uh, ledger of how much the society owes to each person. So that's, I mean, that's how gold started. Like, it's just not feasible to have a ledger where you record that that Anita owes Joe three hours of work and Peter owes Marcus so many hours of uh, this kind of work. And gold replaces that with something that is fungible that you can exchange and, and swap and it's just much more efficient, but it does the same thing. And if we want to replace what gold did in the past and we don't want to go to a ledger that can be arbitrary manipulated by some central bank where they can decide that now society owes the central bank 20% of the global output just because they can, we should agree on one ledger and not on a million ledgers. So I think there is a huge incentive to have just one ledger or just one cryptocurrency and The most stable one is Bitcoin. I mean, it's the most solid. It has the most uh, brain power behind it. It has the biggest network effect because most people are using it. So in order to replace Bitcoin, you would need something that's not only twice as good in any given aspect, but in probably it would need to be five times as good as Bitcoin in all its aspects. Yeah, and I think it has also proven 11 years of highest security. I mean, it was never hacked. Let's talk about Bitcoin wallets, which actually are a crucial part in this peer-to-peer -peer, uh, system, because without wallets, we couldn't uh, send any transactions. So you founded the project Wallet Scrutiny last year. And it says it's a project aimed at improving the security of Android Bitcoin wallets. What is the goal for this project? And how do you want to improve wallets through your analysis? The goal is to avoid exit scams and to avoid major flaws that would make all the users of a, of a certain wallet vulnerable to some backdoors that get injected by the provider or by somebody who has 
a means to add a tag through maybe some libraries that are used in that wallet, etc. So we all remember, I mean, it's, it's common history of the Bitcoin community, what happened with Mt. Gox, but also with other smaller wallets where hundreds of millions of dollars were lost and never to be recovered. And I think something like that will also happen in the wallet space. Mt. Gox was a Bitcoin bank. So people trusted them to have the money. They did fractional reserve banking, meaning they didn't have all the Bitcoins that the people had in their accounts. And so they screwed up and people lost their money. But in Bitcoin, we tell people, be your own bank. But being your own bank is a damn responsibility that not everybody is up to. So I want to make more wallets capable of keeping the Bitcoins safe by making them transparent to security researchers. So it makes sense for the security researchers to find bad apples so we can throw them out from the from the Bitcoin ecosystem and we can concentrate on building the stuff that makes people safe when being their own bank. And being your own bank implies that you use a non-custodial wallet. Because that's what you said before, like uh, Mt. Gox was an exchange, basically, where the exchange held the Bitcoin keys, the private keys for the users. Can we start from scratch, maybe? Because most people are not developers and nobody really knows how a wallet is made. What are the steps when a wallet is built? Every wallet provider has some team. Those teams are sometimes just one guy. And sometimes it's like 15, 20 guys that develop those wallets, but they are not alone. So they rely on stuff that was developed before they started working on the wallet. They use something that's called libraries. So if you want to do a Bitcoin wallet, you don't start from scratch inventing how does Bitcoin work and you don't start from scratch how to make a round button or how to make a drop-down menu. That's something that you use from third parties. So you go, you Google and say, oh, which uh, library has the nicest round buttons? And oh, you like that one? You you just import it into your project. Oh, which library does Bitcoin the best? Oh, that's a nice library. I uh, put that into my project. And now I just need to place my round buttons and connect the buttons with what the Bitcoin library does with some of my own code so that this turns out to be a Bitcoin wallet. And then you do testing, then you might have testers internally. And then comes the important step where somebody hits the compile button and takes the compiled app and gives it to Google. And now Google distributes it to the users. And now the users trust that this wallet is doing what the provider claims it does. So this step of compiling it makes it harder to analyze. So the source code is something that all the dev developers can analyze or could theoretically look into. But the binary that comes out from the compilation is something that is hard to analyze. So what Wallet Scrutiny does is it analyzes who is actually distributing through Google 
a binary that was compiled from the publicly available source code. So if the source code is not publicly available, then the wallet is avoiding scrutiny by hiding what it actually compiled behind closed doors. And as a Bitcoiner, you probably don't want to trust some third party to compile something without any scrutiny because the scrutiny also leads to security researcher looking into the stuff and no team of 10 guys will get perfectly right all aspects of network security, of privacy, of cryptography, of UI glitches that make might make it vulnerable to some data leakage, etc., etc., etc. So to get the the full benefits of public scrutiny, it has to be open source and it has to compile from the public open source code to the binary that they have on Google Play so that reviewing the code has any meaning for the the binary that's found on Google Play. So for non-developers, a binary is basically the application to download. That's the application. When you download the application, it's one file. And that file in, in the world of Android is an APK. In the world of Windows, it's an .exe file or a .com file or something. So it's basically when you download something uh, like an .exe file from the internet, that's a binary. Exactly. And as everybody learned to not just trust any exe file on, on the internet, the APK is also the same thing like an exe file, just that the Android system is protecting you a bit more because the, the binary that you download for your Android cannot reach into the other binaries. Or if you in install Angry Birds, then Angry Birds cannot reach into your Bitcoin wallet and the Bitcoin wallet should not know what the Angry Birds app is doing neither. So the isolation is much better on Android than it is on Windows, for example, or also on Linux. But uh, isolation is not perfect. So if you use the clipboard, any app on your Android has access to the clipboard. If you copy the receiving address of your Bitcoin transaction, then any of the apps you have installed on your Android can, without any extra permissions, take note of you having interest in that Bitcoin address. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So basically, that's also one of the reasons why you should never write down your seed on your smartphone or somewhere else digitally. Well, um, writing it down, for example, in Mycelium, we have a custom keyboard. We don't trust that the keyboard that you happen to have installed on your phone is not... Um, sending everything you write off to some server like there is you can have a google keyboard with spell checker enabled and then for the spell checker everything you type even though it's not in your browser or anything that would be online is being sent online for spell checking and that's what the coinomi wallet for example had for entering your 12 seed words so there's many tricky things that can happen when you use some third-party apps. And so a Bitcoin wallet needs that scrutiny, else they will just do those rookie errors. And there is no single developer who would be able to avoid all of them. The public scrutiny is essential. Why is your project only for Android? Because it would be too much then? Or is there another reason? 
It's because I'm an Android developer. So for me, this was the low-hanging fruit to look into that. And also because I expected that the Android wallets would not all be verifiable. It would be boring to analyze a platform where all the wallets are actually verifiable. And for the desktop wallets, I would expect that those that are open source are much more verifiable than on Android. But I have to get there too. So on iPhone, I expect it will be worse than on Android. As I saw already, several wallet providers claim that they are not allowed to put open source on iPhone. So I have to dig into what that claim is about because Mycelium does have an open source wallet on iPhone. I don't recommend using it because it's uh, it wasn't updated in two years. But but I know that we have the open source code available, but I have never tried to compile it because for compiling it, I think you need an Apple device or some tools work to compile iPhone apps, uh, but I'm not an iPhone developer. So I would just have to figure out how to do that. And then I would expand to iPhone, to desktop, to Apple, to whatever. Are there any industry standards for software wallets? No. I mean, there are standards. So, of course, there is the Bitcoin improvement proposals that a wallet should implement or could implement. So there is how you get from the 12 seed words to your HD wallet. That's covered by several standards. And so a wallet that follows those standards allows the user to still have access to his Bitcoins, even though the wallet provider might switch off its servers. So if uh, one wallet goes under, I can use my backup in another wallet and it would, in theory, just restore my Bitcoins on a different wallet. That works mostly, but as there are more standards, if you try to restore a SegWit wallet on a non-SegWit software, then that non-SegWit software will not find your SegWit Bitcoins, of course. And uh, there are other details about, how, for example, Mycelium is mixing accounts. So if you have a legacy account, a pay-to-script hash SegWit account and a pay-to-SegWit key hash account, then in Mycelium, those would be mixed into one account because you don't want to switch accounts if you want to send to a SegWit address or if you want to receive to a SegWit address. And in other wallets, those would be three separate accounts. But other than that, in theory, you should be able to, if the wallet follows those standards, to restore the same wallet in different software. It sounds terrifying, actually. If I imagine to be a newbie and I hear all those things, I wouldn't know which wallet I should choose. But let's get to that back uh, later, because what I would like to know now is which kind of wallets are you testing? How do you select them? When I started, I just went to the Play Store and searched for Bitcoin wallets. And that got me some 70, presumably, Bitcoin wallets. And I ch checked out if they are Bitcoin, if they have more than 1,000 downloads. And from there, they would fall into those major four categories of either being custodial or closed source or open source or verifiable. Over time, whenever I come across any Bitcoin wallet I had never had heard of, I add it to the project. And sometimes those are not actually Bitcoin wallets. They are 
whatever Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Gold wallets. Sometimes they are already out of business or they are not a wallet at all because they, whatever, track only the worth of your portfolio, but they don't manage private keys. So I categorize them. And first I look, is it custodial? If it's custodial, I'm done with the analysis and I tag it as custodial. 27 of the wallets I analyzed are custodial. 26 ended up to be closed source, nothing to review, nothing to verify. Then technically 29 are open source, but of those 29, only four are verifiable. Verifiable meaning that I was able to reproduce the build that is on Google Play from the GitHub and the build instructions that they provide. So basically one should only use the four that are verifiable or what can happen if I use a wallet of the others? If you use a custodial wallet, of course, the custodian could decide to not let you use your Bitcoins. This happens again and again where people use Coinbase and then Coinbase tells them that they have whatever, they have to provide additional information else they cannot use their Bitcoin anymore. If it's closed source, then there is no way of knowing if the wallet has a backdoor or not. The same applies to if it's open source, but not verifiable. So having an open source wallet, but for example, if it's open source, but I don't share the latest version. So I update on Google Play, but on GitHub, I don't update for a year or two then it's not really open source anymore because the code they used to compile the binary is already two years more of development and it might be just the last release. So if, if they don't release an update on GitHub, but they release an update on Google Play, then they might just have changed such that the backup is being sent to their server. And if you cannot check that, if you cannot verify that, then you cannot really trust that wallet and uh, you should probably not use it. I currently would say it's more nuanced than that. In the verifiable section, there is like mycelium just dropped out of the verifiable section because the build verification, how I do it for wallet scrutiny was not able to reproduce the build. I found that there was one line of difference and that one line could be auditable. So I could read that line and decide that it's a benign difference. And I could say, okay, I still trust that wallet, but I decided to be strict about that. And if it doesn't reproduce exactly, then I classify it as not verifiable. While other wallets like the Samurai wallet, when you compile their source code, which they claim is what is behind the wallet on Google Play, you get thousands and thousands of lines of code that are different than what they claim goes into their wallet. So you certainly should not trust those. And I'm more and more inclined to suggest not to trust any wallet that in three or four months couldn't come around and make their build verifiable. And Samurai is very notorious about that. And Samurai is secret about its founders. So if some random stranger on the street would ask you, hey, give me your money, I will keep it safe for you. And I will 
also uh, scramble it up so it's, uh, you get some extra privacy. Would you give a random person in the street your your money? Probably not. So so if you say, okay, those open source wallets, they try to do their best and they have other priorities like maybe Electrum or Bread Wallet, then trust rather them where there's some faces behind those, those products than a product where the people behind it are anonymous. Yeah, So I'm totally in favor of being anonymous. But if you are anonymous, then you have to make your product transparent. If you don't want to make your product transparent, then you have to at least make yourself vulnerable to uh, recourse. If somebody put some backdoor into their wallet, then they have no cost to, to scamming their users. Yeah? yeah, Satoshi is also anonymous, but Satoshi was completely transparent about everything that went into Bitcoin. And you cannot have it both ways. Yeah, that's very interesting. I did an interview with Thomas Fücklin, the founder of the Electrum Wallet, some months ago. And we were also talking about this uh, being anonymous or not, because when he started out, he also was anonymous. But then he realized he has to put his name because otherwise people wouldn't trust Electrum. Do you know other differences between smartphone wallets and desktop wallets regarding their risk of having backdoors or vulnerabilities? Desktop systems in general are much more heterogeneous. So on Android, most people run one out of five uh, versions of the Android operating system. They, they run one out of three brands of phones that come with, with some Android system pre-installed. So there is several companies or big players that would have access to implant backdoors on your Android phone. There is, of course, Google. There is your uh, provider. Where if you go to telecom and you, you get a new phone from them, then you see already that it's telecom branded. When you start the phone, it says telecom. And just as they can put an animated GIF into your phone, which says telecom, they can put some backdoor into the system. Then if it's a Samsung, then of course, Samsung could have a backdoor there. And that's some huge players that might have an incentive to do those backdoors. So if you want to be secure against those, then you should probably use hardware wallets which you can use with some of the Android wallets. With the desktop wallets, I mean, you could have an Arduino, you could have an HP laptop, you could have, there is many, many brands. There is not so many chip manufacturers, but there is still many more. There's much more variety in terms of chips and providers. And there's just also more volume of uh, providers. That, so it's, much harder to attack the desktop system as a whole, but it's much easier to attack one desktop user as the protection between the isolation between the apps on a desktop system is much worse than on an Android system. So if you install a Bitcoin wallet on your desktop and you install a Bitcoin game on your desktop, then I would say that the probability that a Bitcoin game is actually after your Bitcoin wallet is quite high. So now you have the problem that on your desktop, the database of your Bitcoin wallet is not protected against the game. And now the game can 
just either monitor your keystrokes while you use your Bitcoin wallet or monitor or dig into your file system and read all the files and find your Bitcoins this way. So it's not a black and white situation. Uh, it's all very nuanced, but I would say that mobile wallets have very good security properties because isolation of apps was a concern from the start, but they also have the higher probability of one of those players that have access to all the devices of all the users might go evil on the users. Whew. So actually, then it's really a good rule to say on your phone, you only should have small amounts of money. And if you are the owner of a bigger stash of SATs or Bitcoin, then you should use a hardware wallet, but not a desktop wallet. or. Well, if you are not really a technical user, then you should certainly not have any Bitcoins on your Windows system because you probably have several viruses fighting for dominance over your Windows machine. So <laughs> whichever of those viruses wins will get your Bitcoins. And on your mobile phone, that's a bit of a better situation. And when it comes to hardware wallets, Consider this. Some people say, oh, if it's a life-changing amount for you, better get a hardware wallet. And if not, then uh, don't bother. And for me, the measure I would suggest is, does, is the probability of losing your funds multiplied with the funds you have at stake worth more than buying and learning about a hardware wallet. So if the hardware wallet you're considering is worth $150 and uh, you have $1,500 and you consider it a 10% chance that a software wallet gets uh, emptied by some virus, then you should definitely get a hardware wallet at that point or as soon as uh, Bitcoin rises in value because now the investment of $150 is your expected loss from a virus with this 10% probability and you should get it. And, but if $100 for you is a life-changing amount, then you would have to apply different strategies, maybe use a paper wallet, although they are vulnerable to the software wallet that you end up using it with, etc. But it might be secure against certain viruses that, that you have installed over the time, but not in the moment that you are using your paper wallet. Mm. Yeah, I don't recommend paper wallets. I say if you have a small amount, I think a smartphone wallet will do. But yeah, I mean, everybody's different. It sounds to me that less complexity is better. So the the less complex a software is, the better or the more secure it can be. Does this also mean that Bitcoin-only wallets, which we can see in some hardware wallets, are better than uh, the wallets that can manage more currencies? Absolutely. Complexity is the enemy of security. So, But if you have two specific wallets and you only look at how many coins they support and one supports 12 and the other 100, then it's pointless to argue that the one with 100 is less secure than the one with 12. If the wallet claims to be a native client of each of those coins, 
then it's probably more so that the more coins you have, the more danger there is, because then that means that, oh, to manage Ethereum, I have an Ethereum library in my app, and to manage uh, Monero, I have a Monero library in my app, and every library that I add to my project is a vector of attack. So the Monero guy that does the Monero library can now inject something that steals money from the Leo wallet. So that's something that happened to the Copay wallet. So they used the library. It was not even a crypto library, but the library maintainer, and it was some five lines of code library. It's something like really trivial, which uh, people just don't want to bother to invent uh, themselves. So they use a library for, for that. And the maintainer of that library was bored of getting asked about it. So he handed it over to some anonymous guy. The anonymous guy made an update of that library. And that update was specifically targeting the Copay wallet users. And it was leaking the uh, seed words to the attacker. And of course, a crypto library is more likely to try to get to the crypto keys. And so, yeah, the more libraries you use, the more dangerous. But if you support tokens, ERC-20 tokens, additional tokens, if they are all ERC-20 tokens, might just be an asset like a, a, a picture and a string that defines the token. And that's it. So there is no difference of supporting 12 ERC-20 tokens or 1,200 or 12 million. I don't know how many there are. Yeah. In your test, did you also test the software wallets that come with uh, the big hardware wallets like the Tresor, the Ledger, or the Shift Bitbox O2? Those wallets don't provide Android apps. So as my focus currently is Android, uh, I didn't look into those yet. So that would probably be an, yet another category because uh, if i if i talk about desktop apps so far i had not considered browser apps but some of those apps are browser apps that work with browser plugins and it's like whoa that, that gets quite heterogeneous so it will be hard to get all those into categories and and browsable and and into a nice list like i have currently yeah, it's true. They are not Android apps, but I think the Bitbox O2 will have an app in the future. I'm not quite sure, but I think I heard about that. I could choose another software for my hardware wallet than the one that is provided by the manufacturer. Or can I? I mean, how, how should I decide that as a newbie? I think as a newbie, it's uh, usually natural to use the a software wallet provided by the hardware wallet provider. But a hardware wallet precisely claims to be secure against the software wallets. And Mycelium, we support the Ledger, the Trezor, and the KeepKey. And the idea is that even if Mycelium would turn evil, we would not be able to steal the funds from those hardware wallets. We were in an <laughs> interesting situation because we tried to integrate them or because we tried to upgrade our integration, we touched the code and uh, so we found a bug in the Ledger wallet and that bug would have allowed us to create a transaction where the user would confirm to send $1 to pay his coffee from his account three in his Ledger wallet 
And that $1 would then turn into all the funds he has in account one, two, three, four, and five, and it would empty his whole ledger. So yeah, we, but this vulnerability might also be the backdoor that the provider planted there to to uh, fool all the users into emptying their wallet. So for me, it's uh, one thing to trust the hardware wallet, but it needs to be auditable and it's probably securer to not use the provider's software wallet because maybe that was a backdoor planted by the provider expecting to be able to extract all the funds of all the users at some point in the future. And if you use a third-party software wallet with that, then you don't have that match between the provider that planted the backdoor to then steal the funds and the software wallet that does the stealing later on. So the hardware wallets, I think, are best being used with the, I mean, you need to also update those tools. So the hardware wallet providers know best when you should update your hardware wallet. So maybe they want you to update it to an evil version. So auditing is, again, super important. Maybe they want to protect you from some zero-day exploit that they found because they are the ones that look most at their product. So it's all very tricky. So, so to be really secure, you probably should use a multi-signature setup, which currently is not trivial. So I think don't get too paranoid about what I'm telling. It's if you are not a very technical user. If you're a technical user, please try to figure it out how to, to make it happen and be the first to use the more complicated products to help them be more easy products so that in the future, every average Joey can use a multi-signature setup with multi-hardwares where he doesn't even know that he's using multiple hardware wallets with multiple software wallets because it's all integrated into his one phone that by industry standards has those uh, multiple hardware wallets integrated and is auditable and whatnot. I think a newbie does not really have to be scared now. So I guess if you follow the standards and the recommendations of people like Andreas Antonopoulos, for instance, then I guess you're on the good side. I mean, nothing is 100% secure. But if you back up your seat and use a hardware wallet, I think you most probably are on the, the good side. I mean, because otherwise we would scare people completely off. I mean, if it was warranted to scare people off, we should scare them off. I noticed that verifiability is just not a very interesting topic for many people. And I try to change that. And I try to uh, reach the providers before I reach the users. But so, so if... Now all the new users say, oh, I will never touch Bitcoin because Leo said uh, those wallets are not secure. Then I completely failed. If I get more and more wallets to be verifiable and if I get more wallets to offer bug bounties and if I get more security researchers to look into those verifiable wallets, then I succeeded with my project. 
I think it's a very important project and that's why I also wanted to talk with you. So in the last three years, I've used several wallets because the development is fast and the features are always changing. And as you said before, the Copay wallet, for instance, I used it two or three years ago and then I heard from this bug and, and started to use another wallet. But basically I'm, I'm changing my wallets every year or something like that. What are you doing here? Are you emptying your old wallets and deleting the old ones? Because Satoshi originally said that you should never delete the wallet. Oh, you should never throw away your key material. But of course, you should empty your wallet. So if you switch, even if you switch from one cell phone to the next one, if you buy a new Android phone and you want to keep using your old wallet, let's say you're using Mycelium and now you use another Android phone again with Mycelium, don't export the 12 seed words and import them on the other wallet. It would just double your attack surface. So if somebody somehow got a hold of your 12 seed words on your old phone and you keep using the, those 12 seed words on your new phone, then you just took over your vulnerability to that guy pressing the empty all those wallets button that he is monitoring for increasing amounts in his soon-to-be-had wallet. Yeah? So take the opportunity, create a new, a new backup, send your funds over, but keep the seed words of your old wallet because maybe somebody accidentally sends your funds to an address he had from last year and thinks that's still Anita's wallet, just send it there. And so those funds don't get lost. Keep those backups so you have a track record of what you transacted and uh, keep them in a safe place because you don't want a random person to have access to your complete transaction history, but keep them, but keep them empty. Oh, that's very interesting. Thanks. One of the questions I always ask myself each time I'm using my wallet is how should I set, how high should I set the transaction fee? And then I always go to this uh, website where you can see the current transaction fees and how long you have to wait to get your transaction into the next block. Why can I not see that inside my wallet? I think that would be a better usability if I could see which transaction fee is recommended to get it into the next block in the next 10 or 20 minutes. Oh, there is. Most wallets have that integrated into the UI. So what we do at Mycelium is we have uh, four levels, like uh, high priority, uh, normal priority, low priority, and something like that. So you pick those, and depending on how the Bitcoin network behaved over the last week, Low priority might be one Satoshi per byte or low priority might be 50 Satoshi per byte. But as that is always a guess about the future and no certainty, those fees tend to be not accurate or those predictions, what's your inclusion into a new block is not accurate. So just because in the last week, only 1% of guys that paid three Satoshi per byte did not get a confirmation within five blocks. It doesn't mean that that same 5% probability applies to you because if you hit send and a second before that, 
some guy decided to consolidate his 1 million UTXOs and pay a, a fee that is higher than the fee that you are about to pay, then you are in line after that guy. So he will fill up the next 60 blocks and then it's time for whoever came after that. And if in those during those 60 blocks, other people realize that now the fees are high again, then they will create transactions with higher fees. And then people get excited that there is activity on the blockchain and they start moving their coins. And there can be a whole uh, tale of activity that happens after you hit that send button so that your heuristic of when will my transaction get confirmed will turn completely obsolete the second that you hit the send button. So it's not trivial. Okay, I understand. So looking on on this website, bitcoinfeesearn.com doesn't help me actually. I prefer jochen hoenicke or H-O-E-Nicke.de, where you can find a histogram of which fee level represented how many megabytes of block space not confirmed yet on the Bitcoin folder. Once you understand what those uh, charts mean, then it's much more meaningful than having some entity uh, tell you which fee level will get you which confirmation time. Okay, thanks. I'll put that in the show notes then. We're coming to an end now. Uh, the last question I have is what are you planning next with Wallet Scrutiny and how could anybody support you in this project? Well, if you if you know something about compiling wallets and if you want to help, yeah, I, I would be very eager to find somebody take the iPhone part to take to figure out how to approach desktop wallets. I don't have a Mac and I don't know, it would be nice to have that. And of course, there to develop the standards, how to make it reproducible, because all wallet scrutiny is also um, open to scrutiny. So all the results I get, I hope to have completely reproducible. So it should be easy for anybody to reproduce those. So if you care, please share, like, and follow me on, on Twitter and follow Wallet Scrutiny on Twitter. Help me fight those people that try to downplay what is going on with uh, with those wallets. And yeah, and finally, there's also a donate button in the website. So use that, try it out, see if it works. Tell us your Twitter handle, please, and the uh, location of your website. So my Twitter handler is uh, Leo Vanderslip. And the wallet scrutiny handle is just that wallet scrutiny. Great. Anything that you want to add that we have forgotten maybe? No. Then thank you, Leo. That was very interesting. I learned a lot in our talk and I wish you all the best. Bye. Thank you, Anita. Thanks for having me. Bye. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. I hope you'll join me again next week. If you like my show, please write a recommendation in your favorite podcast player. If you're a German speaker and want to start using Bitcoin, then I recommend my book to you. It gives a comprehensive jumpstart into becoming a Bitcoin user with recommendations and safety tips. You can buy it on Amazon or if you prefer to pay with Bitcoin or Lightning, drop me a message at hello at anitaposch.com. I'm currently looking for new sponsors for my podcast, so please feel free to send me a message too. 
For new updates, please follow me on Twitter at Anita Posch and subscribe to my newsletter at anitaposch.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you for listening. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch. Thank you.